Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Gonzalo Herrero Delicado. I'm the architecture program curator here at the Royal Academy. Welcome, everyone. In this event, we will discuss about the issue that the book Lost Futures raises about the origins and present status of the post-war modern architecture. Lost Futures, uh, the disappearing architecture of post-war Britain, was written by Owen Hopkins and published this year by the Royal Academy. The book explored the rise and fall of buildings constructed in Britain between uh, 1945 and 1979. Buildings that reflected the deep-rooted uh, belief in architecture's capacity to build a better world. The book highlights uh, the ideas, values that shaped the creation of these buildings, but also how changing uh, external contexts, whether they are like social, economical, or political, played a part in the subsequent uh, demise and destruction of these so-called concrete uh, monstrosities. This book was also the origin of the Love Future Future Found season, which included a thoughtful like, public program curated by Tom Wilkinson, but also an exhibition uh, which is um, open now downstairs in the architecture space called Future Found, the Real and Imagined Cityscapes of Postwar Britain. Uh, this exhibition will be open, uh, it has been extended until 25th of June uh, and will be part of the London Festival of Architecture. This afternoon, we are joined by the author of Lost Future book, Owen Hopkins, and the ICON's deputy uh, editor, John Jervis, who recently reviewed the, the book on, on ICON. Now let me introduce you to both of them. Owen Hopkins is a writer, historian, and, and curator of architecture. He's now senior curator of exhibitions and educations, uh, education at Sir John Sons Museum, and is my former me, the uh, architecture program curator at the at the RA. He has written extensively uh, on architecture and is the author of a number of books, including Mavericks, Breaking the Mold of British Architectures, From Sados, uh, The Architecture and Afterlife of Nicholas Hawksmore, and Architectural Styles, a visual guide. Uh, on the other hand, joining him on conversation will be uh, John Jervis, deputy, as I said, like deputy editor of Icon Magazine. He has published widely on art, architecture, and design, and has studied architectural history at the Bartlett at the UCL, and modern history at Magdalen College at Oxford University. He was, uh, before joining Icon, he was a managing editor of Art Asia Pacific in Hong Kong, and senior editor at Tate Publishing and Lawrence King's Publishing. The event will start with a presentation of 15 minutes from Owen, explaining a little bit like in, into detail uh, about his book, followed by a conversation uh, with John Jervis and some time for questions for the audience. Please give a warm welcome to Owen Hopkins. Well, thank you, Gonzalo, for that very kind introduction. It's very pleasing to be here and talk about lost futures. Uh, the idea of the book was really came from my experience of where I live, which is between Kennington and Woolworth, just south of Elephant and Castle. This is historically quite a poor working class area, uh, but it was reborn in the 60s and 70s with the construction of two vast housing estates, both of which are probably quite familiar, the Haygate Estate and the Aylesbury Estate just uh, to the south. And I think the Aylesbury was actually possibly the single largest housing estate in Europe when it was completed. I remember quite clearly uh, as a student discovering the Haygate for the first time. Uh, it was actually while sitting on a bus that was trundling its way along the Old Kent Road and then the New Kent Road. 
and then this amazing sensation of suddenly being confronted by these vast uh, slab blocks of the Haygate with this sort of unrelenting geometric precision. And I remember also, um, oddly, going to a party um, held by some, I think, friends of friends who actually lived on the Haygate Estates, not in one of these slab blocks, but in one of the low-rise blocks of masonettes that ran along the south side. And uh, it was interesting because they got a cheap deal because the whole block was soon to be demolished. And this was a, a, a weird echo, I suppose, of people from my parents' generation many of whom the students in London similarly lived in condemned accommodation because it was so cheap. Uh, the difference was that they lived in Victorian terraces and townhouses rather than these concrete emblems of this brave new world that perhaps never quite happened. The demolition of the Haygate estate was finally completed in 2014 uh, after the last residents were evicted. And I think they definitely were evicted by the end. And the site, for anyone who knows that area, is, is a hive of activity, now in the ownership of the developer Lendlease, which is currently building out a master plan that will double the density from the previous estate, but includes just 79 flats that will be available for social rent. Southwark Council really were taken to the cleaners there, I think. Uh, further south, the Aylesbury is in the process of a 20-year program of regeneration, a word which now has a curious meaning uh, here, as with the Haygate, synonymous with decanting and demolition. Now, this phenomenon is, of course, hardly confined to South London, but it's going on all over the capital. And one of the most famous examples being Robin Hood Gardens. Oh, I've missed the slide. There's the Aylesbury Estate, by the way, if anyone who's unfamiliar with it, in the process of being demolished. And here's Robin Hood Gardens uh, by Alison Peter Smithson, of course. And the reputation of this building uh, is, is, is a, it has, you know, it's a significant one. It's revered by architects. And it was also uh, liked by its residents, uh, at least before it was allowed to disintegrate into the state it's in by the local authority. And the residents actually voted overwhelmingly in favor of its refurbishment as, interestingly, they had also done at the Aylesbury. And there are, of course, many other examples of these uh, regeneration slash demolitions occurring. Uh, and it, it seems curious to me that when all political parties, I think, now admit that we're in the midst of a housing crisis, even if they don't use that terminology, um, that one of the consequences, indeed one of the proposed solutions sometimes, is actually the demolition of vast amounts of social housing that could easily be refurbished. And they seem to be able to manage this in Europe really well. Uh, the winner of the uh, Mies van der Rohe Award this year was actually a revamp of a 1960s slab block in Amsterdam, larger than those of the Haygate and the Aylesbury. And of course, this is happening at a time when brutalism, post-war architecture more broadly, has undergone quite a dramatic rehabilitation and reappraisal. So when it comes to the, the reasons that these buildings, particularly housing, uh, have become the target for the wrecking ball, you know, it seems that we can't separate it from uh, politics. And you know, the reasons are, in many instances, actually very little to do with the buildings themselves. Um, and you know, because it is so political, 
uh, it's very easy to be swept along by an argument that has become hugely polarized and actually distorts how we come to see uh, so much post-war architecture. And the, the, on, the, on the two sides, you have those usually on the political right, but not always, for whom these buildings are, to use the cliche, concrete monstrosities. They are alien invaders that have trampled on the traditional streetscape, whose modernist design has somehow actively promoted crime and antisocial behavior. They are relics of a different age with these perhaps quaint beliefs in equality, progress, that the best days of the nation were still to come. So that's one side. And then on the other, perhaps, well, I don't know, in many ways, certainly on the political left, there are those who celebrate buildings for the same values that their opponents disdain them. They are the physical embodiment of a state and a society that sought to ensure that everyone had a decent, modern place to live, and that whatever social problems these estates may or may not have had were a consequence of broader social and economic policies, rather than anything that was necessarily inherent in the buildings or what they aspired to achieve. So, as I say, it's a very polarized debate, and, and it has come to distort how we see these buildings, housing especially, but also more broadly. And what I aimed to do with Lost Futures was, was actually to try to chart a course between these arguments to take what I hoped was a relatively balanced view and a dispassionate one to record 35 buildings across a range of types spread across Britain that were constructed between 1945 and 1979 that have been or very shortly will be demolished or heavily altered. And you know, I hope that it would be neither an attack nor a lament but rather an exploration of the ideas, the values that shaped the creation of these buildings and how changing contexts, whether social, economic, political, as well as their own internal characteristics, have played a part in their destruction. So what I'll do just for the remainder of uh, my little introduction of the book is just to rehearse a few of the points that's, that I make in it, and hopefully this will set the scene for the subsequent uh, conversation. The first thing I think it's vital to do is actually to try to get to grips with how people saw this architecture at the time, when it was being created. Uh, the immediate post-war years, as we, as we all know, were a time of rationing material shortages. So for many people, actually, the first taste of this sort of brave new world that was to come was at the Festival of Britain, which was attended by 8.5 million people which was actually a fifth of the population of the country at the time. So actually, it's just a huge proportion of people. And it was, I would say, the experience of modern architecture, as much as what these new buildings uh, on the South Bank contained, that contributed to this sense of optimism that the festival as a whole uh, engendered. Here we have this rather fantastic uh, flyer, poster, showing the site. And part of the festival uh, was actually the Lansbury Estate, which was intended as the, the live architecture exhibition, where a lot of the modernist ideas would be seen to be playing out in a part of London. But this, f interestingly, uh, was actually met with quite a mixed reaction. 
uh, from the architectural press and only attracted 90,000 visitors, which obviously, you know, is nothing compared to 8.5 million who visited the festival site on the South Bank. And the reason I, I mention it also is because this was the festival site on the South Bank was actually the first instance, uh, as far as I can tell, of post-war architecture coming under attack for the values it was perceived to hold. Because soon after returning to office, Winston Churchill ordered the buildings to be torn down, leaving just the festival hall. Because in his and uh, the view of the members of the Conservative Party, they saw this as, as sort of uh, you know, a classic case of socialist uh, propaganda on the part of Atlee's government. But despite this, during the 50s, both Tory and Labour uh, parties were engaged in what was really a political arms race. Uh, as politicians from both sides tried to outdo each other in terms of how many homes they could each build. And the peak came actually in 1953 uh, under the Conservative Housing Minister, Harold Macmillan, who managed to oversee the completion of 300,000 houses in the, private, in, in the public sector even. Uh, and this is a number that obviously has not been achieved since. Now the trade-off to that uh, reach for numbers was, uh, in many instances, a decline in quality. And, you know, leaks, heating issues, and in the case of Ronan Point and Newham, major structural defects, uh, you know, became quite prevalent. And this has certainly played a part in the subsequent histories of many of these buildings. Uh, on a broader level, though, some observers, you know, very early on, were beginning to question uh, whether what was being realized, particularly when it came to town planning, was in fact better than what it replaced. One of the most prominent was Ian Nen, who in 1955 launched a pretty scathing attack on modernist planning in the Architecture Review in a special issue called Outrage. And he described uh, many of these modernist developments as creating a subtopia, which in his words, were an, an annihilation of the site, the steamrollering of all individuality of place to one uniform and mediocre pattern. And you know, looking at what happened to some city centres, Birmingham, perhaps the case in point, uh, he had, uh, you know, there was something to what he was saying. And you know, by the early 1970s, the early optimism embodied in the Festival of Britain had begun to subside and the shaky foundations of the British economy had been exposed by the 1973 oil crisis. And one of the sometimes overlooked aspects of the post-war era, and certainly as far as architecture is concerned, uh, was the extent to which it was built on the assumption that energy would remain cheap and plentiful in perpetuity. Uh, in this era, a building's environmental performance wasn't something that usually crossed uh, architects' minds, or indeed those of their clients. So when the price of oil shot up, many inhabitants of larger states with municipal heating systems simply couldn't afford to heat their homes that had been built, in some instances, with little insulation and with single glazing. And as the political winds changed in the 1970s, eventually leading in 79 with the election of Thatcher, uh, with this decisive break with the post-war consensus, it was perhaps uh, unsurprising that as a highly visible embodiment of the, the collectivist values of the post-war era, that architecture would be under 
quite vociferous attack. And it's maybe a little more surprising uh, is how the views of post-war architecture that were forged during the 70s, reaffirmed in the 80s, have persisted and have actually hardened in many instances. I think one of the striking things about the sort of so-called Cool Britannia and 1960s nostalgia uh, from the mid-90s was the complete absence of architecture because the precise architectural contemporary of the Kink's Waterloo Sunset was, of course, the, uh, this building, the South Bank Centre. So where does this leave us? Well, post-war architecture, as we all know, is back in fashion, the subject of numerous coffee table books, uh, T-shirts, trays, calendars, all sorts of the cushions. Um, and it remains, I think, an open question to what extent post-war architecture has been uncoupled from the values of the era that created it, especially as it has circulated and has become commercialized, particularly online, and many of its buildings, are, certainly in London, are becoming gentrified. Balfour Tower is the classic example. Uh, but a consequence of this reassessment and revival of interest in post-war architecture has been the preservation of a number of its best buildings, uh, even as the, the rate at which others are lost continues to rise. And the point I make at the end of the uh, introduction to the book is, you know, we're at a moment when the, the challenges of our own immediate and longer-term future are, are becoming more and more urgent. And, you know, the search for alternatives to the, the status quo, political, economic, becomes all the more important. And you know, to my mind, the surviving architecture of the post-war era provides really striking physical evidence that the systems and the values that we have today are not the ones that we've always had. And despite appearances, things can be changed and can be changed quite dramatically. Thank you. I brought some notes along with me because I've got a really terrible memory. Um, so obviously I'm going to use these to, to poke Owen a bit about various subjects. But um, obviously I'm also a great fan of the book, which is why I agreed to do this. Um, but we will open uh, the subject to the floor later. So uh, hopefully you can come up with some questions that um, are a little bit more challenging to Owen. Um, because this is a subject that people feel very passionate about at the moment, which um, they didn't really sort of five or ten years ago. And they feel passionate about both the sort of social aspect and the aesthetic aspect. You know, they actually want to live in these uh, housing states in a way they didn't. I mean, why do you think it's happened now that uh, it's been re-embraced in this way? It, it, it's a really interesting question. I think there are inevitably a number of factors. I think on a very kind of mundane level, it's just simply the wheel of taste is turning. And a lot of the people who are becoming interested in brutalism, post-war architecture more broadly, are perhaps born in the 80s or later and haven't perhaps been indoctrinated in that revulsion against these buildings that no earlier generation uh, had been. Uh, I think it's also to do with the housing crisis and 
again, particularly young people, looking back at an era when the state was interested in providing housing for everyone, irrespective of wealth, and comparing it to what we have now and the difficulties that particularly young people, again, have in finding housing that is affordable and suitable uh, for their needs. Um, and then it's also, I think, to do with online culture, too, and the way that these buildings are incredibly photogenic. And, uh, you know, these are, you know this, this is, you know, one of the most striking uh, photographs in the book, I think. Um, and, you know, the ability of these buildings to somehow be compressed into the frame of a photograph and then be shared uh, online, I think, is, is played a really important part. And it's, it's, it's that, I think, where one begins to ask the questions about to what extent these buildings have become depoliticized. Yeah, I guess, as you said, this book is, makes a great effort to be dispassionate on these subjects, which is an element I enjoyed about it. But uh, occasionally, there's a little bit of um, an edge I guess one of the entertaining examples of that was when you mention an aspect of these these uh, brutalist tumblers and websites as, as a little bit of virtue signaling from certain people about embracing a sort of a different sort of architecture and um, a different ethos, but without actually doing much about it. Yeah, that's definitely true, and that is part of you know the sort of social phenomenons of social social media, isn't it? <laughs> Ultimately. Uh, is the way that what you share, what you like, is about creating a kind of idealized version of yourself. And, you know, it might be something that, you know, you want to align yourself with brutalist architecture because it still has that kind of outsider status, you know, which is, you know, diluted considerably from, say, uh, I remember watching this um, documentary that was on BBC where... Uh, you know, from the late 80s, early 90s, where architects and critics talk about their famous buildings. And there was one of Stephen Bailey talking about uh, Goldfinger's Alexander Fleming House at Elephant and Castle. At a moment when, you know, brutalism was, was, you know, at rock bottom. And there's this kind of frisson of excitement, I think, of aligning yourself with something that everyone hates at that time. And we're still feeling the echoes of that. You know, brutalism, um, I don't think yet has become mainstream that that is entirely lost now. Yeah, again, I mean, coming back to the dispassionate thing, I suppose it is quite challenging at the moment because of the nature of the housing crisis um, and the selling off of, of council stock and such like. Um, I mean, did you, did you find it hard to retain that sort of distance when you were writing? I didn't really think about it. <laughs> it's a really interesting question. I mean, yes, there's so much to get angry about, actually. Um, but, you know, I tried... I suppose I did try consciously to avoid that. And, you know, there are plenty of other books where, if you, you know, if you want to read someone who is very angry about what is happening, and, you know, quite rightly in many ways, you can find that elsewhere. You know, I wanted, as I say, to try to thread... A, a course somehow between the two sides of what is a very polarized argument because 
you know, I think like any, any, the architecture of any era, you know, the picture is inevitably a mixed one. There are some successes and there are some things that didn't go so well. And to say everything was bad or everything was good is, as, as you know, the argument about this architecture has sometimes been reduced to, you know, it actually does a disservice to what's there and what actually happened. Um, I mean, there is, almost despite yourself, there is an air of regret when you're sort of listing the libraries, you know, the water gardens, the schools that have been demolished. We have lost something, haven't we, though? I mean, there was that belief that architecture and society could go hand in hand in sort of improving and moving Britain forward into a, a, essentially a new age. Do you feel we've lost something along the way? I'm sure we have, yeah. Um, I mean, where... <laughs> It, you know, it's very interesting. You know, I, I actually live on a, um, an estate, the Brandon Estate, which is, to plug for the, uh, uh, the show downstairs, is, is featured in, in the little bit that I contribute to it. And it, it is interesting because that is, on the whole, a very successful estate, um, late 1950s. But it's been treated so, so badly by the local authority uh, who continue to, uh, you know, just to sort of, as I say, to treat it with disdain, actually. Um, you know, the, just recently, I noticed that there are these six 18-storey tower blocks, which are the kind of this, this really important South London landmark. They were the tallest towers built by the LCC when they were completed in 1960. And they are really elegant buildings. Uh, they originally were white. They now inevitably become grey. And I saw some scaffolding going up uh, the other, uh, a few weeks ago. And I was like, oh my god, are they going to clean them? What, you know, what's happening? No, no, no. They're um, uh, repairing, uh, well, actually they're replacing uh, the, the gas work for all of the flats. And rather than putting it through the building's core, as the architects hoped would happen, uh, when the building needed to be upgraded, they were conscious of that, they've just stuck it onto the side. And it looks awful. And what this says to me is that, you know, for, on the part of the local authority, the, you know, these buildings are just purely functional things. They're just there to provide X number of units of housing. There is no sense that the architecture can contribute to a place that people feel a connection to that can help build uh, a community there. And, you know, because they just need to look at how the council's treating where they live. And you know, they will think, well, you know, why should we think any differently, actually? So yes, I, you know, something has definitely um, been lost. I guess, I mean, one of the excuses generally used when it comes to the demolition of, of these structures is, is that issue of the difficulty of upgrading them. Uh, and you touch, I mean, and one of the huge investments of the 60s was the new universities. Um, and in fact, all the universities. Uh, were expanded, and that, that was a great thing. Um, the Imperial Institute and the Imperial College uh, is, I think, the example you use for that, and the South Side uh, Halls of Residence. But you're quite even-handed about the fact that upgrading those structures would be a pretty, pretty mammoth task. Um, and I guess the same thing is happening at, at York at the moment with, I don't know if people know the uh, attempt to save a list, I think, Dunelm. Uh, Durham. Oh, is it in Durham? Yeah. Okay. I've shown that I have a terrible memory. Um, and again, the university is using the uh, argument that 
to actually upgrade these structures would be prohibitively expensive. Um, um, do we just accept that some of these just have to go, that this isn't, this isn't sort of feasible? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the points I make in the book, is that, you know, I, I'm not going to, It would be ridiculous to argue that every one of these buildings should be retained because, you know, some were not very good buildings and there needs to be a constant churn as, you know, you know buildings reach the end of their lives and, and need to be uh, replaced. And certainly, you know, you mentioned the South Side Halls of Residence in Imperial College. That was a building which, it, from what I read about it, you know, and obviously you need to kind of read between the lines as well, but from what I could glean, it just was not feasible to... Uh, to refurbish it and to make it fit for students again. It was just, it was impossible um, without completely, you know, taking the part and rebuilding, which, which is a pretty pointless exercise if you're thinking about retaining the building. And, you know, it was eventually um, uh, replaced. But, you know, that's just one thing and, and one aspect of it. And that happens to buildings of every period. You know, things are weeded out, others are retained. But, you know, I was interested also in that ideological attempt, as we're seeing with housing, to not, well, perhaps erase uh, some of the, the great monuments of that era because of the values that they came, they hold, even now. Yeah, uh, it is difficult, isn't it? I mean, these buildings, obviously, for some people, have one memory, and for others, another. And people feel very passionate about them as a result. I think the reason why people are are very passionate about them is, is partly because the memory of, of trying to create something better, and, and we don't seem to have that anymore. We just feel that we do the best with what we've got, and that's, that's about it. Um, and I guess Southside is again, another example of that. In a way, they knocked down a Victorian building to create something they thought was going to last for 100 years, and they said that, um, and create something better. Um, and in a way, the Victorians did that as well. They really felt they were improving society and creating schools and libraries and such like. And in a way, that's why I think they both came back into fashion. Uh, I mean, is the architecture of today ever going to get, come back into fashion? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's a, that's a really tough question. The architecture of today, you know, you know we, we're now living in an era that we could still define as postmodern in that you don't have the, that grand narrative, that sense of progress in the way that you had in the post-war era and the way that you can see buildings of all types, in all locations, that are in some ways modernist as pulling in the same direction to some extent. You know, it's about contributing to this idea that we will be able to create a better future through architecture. Um, so there is there's that ability to, to, to see post-war architecture, I think, as something in its entirety. Now, within that, there, you know, there are obviously huge variances in you know, what different architects are doing in different places. But you can, I think, I don't think it's an anachronism to see it as one single thing. And obviously, and today, it's quite the reverse. There's no way you could possibly you know, comprehend you know, the architecture of, maybe, or maybe you can, subsequent <laughs> historians in 50 years' time will look back and will, it will be very clear what was going on. But to my mind, you know, it, actually, it, um, it's far less obvious. I mean, to come back to the book a bit, uh, you choose 35 projects, which have a great range, I think. Um, 
were there ones you had to exclude that um, you you were regretted having to sort of chop off? Or could you do a sequel to this for another 35? You could, you could definitely do a sequel. Uh, we'll see if the RA does it. Uh, I, I can't remember any particular buildings that I sort of had to exclude. You know, I think we just hit on 35 as a number that was sort of would create a viable book, to be quite honest. Uh, you mentioned in review that NHS buildings were absent, and that was definitely an oversight. And on reflection, there should have been one. Um, just thinking about it, I, you know, the um, Princess Margaret Hospital in Swindon by Powell and Moore, I think, would have been a case in point in that I think that was one of the first general hospitals built um, under the NHS, uh, and it's, then, it's now been replaced by PFI scheme. So it tells a lot, actually, about each era. Yeah, you have some harsh words for PFI, I, I remember. Um, and I, I guess an opportunity for you to sort of maybe talk about one of the projects in more detail. I mean, was there any particular favorite or a couple of them that you, uh, um, you would like to go into more detail? Yeah, well, yeah, lots of them because you know you're writing for a format and and you know it was ne needed to be quite brief. I mean, I think the housing was where there was much more scope to go into the histories because you know these are places where people lived that are places full of memories formed over time, and you know a, a 300 word thing is just going to be not even scratching the surface as to, you know, what this place meant to people who lived there, people who visited people who lived there. So that, I think that, that's the thing that was missing. I mean, if, if I was going to be very harsh, I mean, I would, be harsh, yeah. <laughs> I would say that you could, despite being mean about those, those worthy people doing their brutalist tumblers, you could see this as, as a similar uh, activity, and that most of these buildings are exceptional in one way or other. And they, because of that, they don't necessarily tell you as much about the era as uh, a bungalow would or uh, an office in, I don't know, in, in um, Swindon. I mean, do you think you're misrepresenting to some extent what the reality of, of the lost futures were at the time? Yeah, inevitably. Um, you know, these, these buildings, I mean, look at that. <laughs> uh, in a tricorn centre... You know, these, these buildings are the ones that merited being photographed by the architectural press. So they, you know, they were, by definition, standout buildings by, in some instances, by quite significant architects. And, yeah, there's a very strong argument, which I think was explored in one of the events that Tom Wilkinson uh, curated as part of this season about everyday modernism and making the point that actually, you know, what was far more transformative than these sort of architectural monuments, as, as some of the, the buildings in the book certainly are, um, were the, the sort of the, the everyday changes, you know, in you know, fitted kitchens um, and th those kinds of things that, you know, in terms of their effects on people's daily life, far more uh, important than, you know, an architectural monument like the Tricorn Centre. I mean, just behind us now, we had John Madden's, uh, is it Birmingham Post building? Um, which I guess is, is unique in the book in that it, it's a sort of concrete, sorry, a, a steel and glass structure, a sort of commercial architecture to some extent, which you don't really touch on. Is that, uh, 
why did you make that decision? Well, I mean, again, probably a little bit of an oversight. That I should, should have probably been a bit more commercial architecture um, in the mix. Um, so yeah, I mean, I can hold my hands up and say <laughs> I feel you're I'm right. Just bullying you but, now. <laughs> but yeah, and I mean, yeah, uh, it, it, I, mean, I suppose that building does stand out a bit because it is the one sort of steel and glass Mucian uh, mm. example. There are lots of others that you could, have, you know, I could have included in the book as well, and you know, perhaps should have done. Um, I, I suppose again, it would be mildly interesting to have had structures of the time which just didn't. Um, embrace this particular form of modernism. Um, and I was thinking of things like uh, New Change behind St. Paul's. I don't know if you remember that. That was demolished about 10 years ago for that uh, interesting Jean Nouvel shopping centre. Um, or I said the Shell Centre is under threat. Um, I mean, there was sort of, there was another architecture going on at the time that we, I wouldn't say we see it as embarrassing, but it, we don't really embrace it really so that it's sort of like a residual classicism i mean yeah, in, the case, in the case classicism of classicism or no georgian or yeah i mean in, yeah in the case of that um you know the building behind uh that was behind st paul's um you know what was a, a a quite i mean i remember it quite well i mean you can't find a picture of it online interestingly um it's sort of class, classic background architecture and it was steel frame but uh, very much sort of neo-Georgian um, vernacular, um, and yes, I mean that does that again is not featured um, in the book, and maybe that was sort of implicit judgment I made that you know talking about this this idea of the future, you know, necessitated some form of modernism. Do you think? Um we can we can ever grasp that form of modernism again, the sort of idea of the future, um, or have we lost it? Are we just too too cynical to sort of build yeah build new futures in the way that we did back in the yeah, back in the sixties? <laughs> I have no idea. Have no I mean, idea. I think yeah. I think maybe some of the the audience might have a view on this. Mm. Uh, it comes back to politics ultimately, um, you know, and, and you know this. Maybe not this, but some of some of the you know many of the buildings it, it's a it's a quite a particular idea of the future that's trying to be created, uh, and you know there are people working now you know interested in a very different kind of future. You think about the futures being imagined in Silicon Valley, for example, which is I would say not really a social democratic future. It's more of a libertarian future. Mm. Uh, Arguably, with then healthy doses of state subsidy as well to get you know, these companies off the ground, but that you know that's a um, that's a different argument in a way. But so yeah, I mean it's I don't, yeah I, I said earlier that we you know we live in what is still a postmodern culture where the idea of the future perhaps doesn't exist in the same way, and that's true, but maybe more of a technological future is still being imagined. I should probably open this to the floor pretty soon. Um, I, I guess two other things I th off the top of my head. I, well, I really enjoyed the fact that you put, also mentioned the, the independent group and the sort of wider um, ambitions or sort of curiosities behind uh, brutalism. And perhaps you could expand on that a bit. Well, I think one of the things about brutalism is the way that it's been uh, co-opted by the political left 
uh, you know, for quite valid reasons. Um, but the, you know, the actual thing of brutalism was far more complex and, you know, was, was interested in mass culture and consumerism at the same time as having quite a clear social agenda. And just to pick one aspect of brutalism and amplify that to be the only way that we see that architecture now, I think is doing it a disservice. When you look at it, it's, it's actually a far more complex thing. I mean, I'd agree, but you're sort of, is it fair to say you'd be slightly out on the limb there in, uh, on the general sort of trend of, of architectural criticism, architectural history at the moment? I mean, not out on the limb really, but the polemic is, is quite harsh at the moment. Um, are, you, are you happy to take a different route? That's what I aim to do <laughs> with, the, with the book. Yeah, and, you know, I've had a few interactions with people on Twitter who disagree with that, and that's, and that's fine. And, I mean, while doing the project, have, did your feelings about the period evolve in any way? Well, I think the, the, you know, the starting point was, you know, looking at the buildings themselves and what... You know, trying to sort of sidestep, as I say, from these polemics and to think about what it means to have a building that disappears versus what it means to have a building that's still there, that's preserved and retained. So, so one of the things that I was interested in is the fact that a number of these buildings, <clears throat> obviously not the ones in the book, are now, uh, or actually a couple of them, oddly, in the book, are now listed and are preserved. And, you know... I was interested in, in, in what the actual experience of the buildings presented uh, as a kind of counterpoint to how they have this existence online and through the image. Because, you know, I think to say that, you know, as um, a uh, writer did, of, you know, of a leftist persuasion in a national newspaper that Balfour Tower is the, the zombie corpse of the welfare state actually does a huge disservice to the architecture because, yes, it may be being sold off to people working Canary Wharf, but if you go around that building and you, know, you look at how it's been designed, you can't take away the ideals uh, from it. You can't, you can't disconnect them from the physical fabric. You walk across one of those connecting corridors between the service tower where the lifts are into the building itself. And then you, you, you feel that this is a place that's made for people to meet and to come together. And the way that all the front doors are on that same level you know, is, is about trying to promote social interactions, which you don't get in uh, ha most of the housing that's going up now. It's kind of actually quite the reverse. It's designed to... Uh, actually avoid those awkward conversations with your neighbour, for example. Yeah, I guess it's the lived experience that is, is really enjoyable about this book, and that's what you make an effort to go into. Okay, well, uh, shall we have some questions from the floor? Thank you. Uh, to be topical, I wanted to ask about Europe. As some people may know, we are having a slightly difficult relationship with Europe at the moment. So one question is, do you think attitudes in continental Europe to these buildings are different to in the UK? And the context for that question is 
uh, one, our sort of British sense of exceptionalism that has caused us to wish to disengage from the European Union, and the fact that many of the ideas that inform these kinds of buildings are not really British, they, they originate in Europe, and in fact many of the architects who were pioneers of this stuff, um, Lubeck and Goldfinger, who of course famously became the model for a James Bond villain, many of them were European, and there's a sense that kind of word alien um, is very much part of it. But, but kind of interestingly as well, Owen Hatherley in his book Militant Modernism makes a claim that once the British took these ideas on, we, we actually did them far more radically than some of the Europeans, that you know, we were kind of pretty full on with our brutalism. But I just wondered what you thought about that, whether there is something about the Europeanness of these buildings that has influenced the attitudes that we have to them, you know, which, which kind of links into current events in politics, and whether you think attitudes to them in, in Europe are different. That's a really interesting question. I don't know about attitudes to these, the equivalent of these buildings in Europe, so I couldn't really comment on that. Maybe someone in the audience might have some uh, views. But I, I, totally, yeah, I, I completely agree that the fact that, you know, certainly initially, these buildings were very much inspired by European uh, modernism. And, you know, if you look at the reaction to them in the 70s and 80s and what was being proposed in their stead, you see very clearly that, 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 it, that it was all about their, their alienness, their foreignness. Because what was being proposed in their stead was... You know, Poundbury, for example, which is all about some idealised version of British vernacular, and you know, at the same time, you know, these you know these buildings um, <coughs> were going up. You were having revival of interest in Victorian architecture, and the Victorian society was um, founded in the in the late fifties as a direct consequence of slum clearances in many instances. Uh, so, you know, even from the beginning, you have that sense that, that you know, these are somehow alien and are, you know, trammeling the, uh, the British way of living in a city. Um, I have two questions. So one is, um, looking backwards, I just wondered if you thought there was a connection um, in the, the revival of brutalism, if you thought there was maybe a connection to the revival of Russian constructivism in 1980s architectural circles. And looking forwards, you talked about the difficulty of defining a single style. I wondered if you thought there was a, uh, a style for the coming era of Mayism. The, the Russian constructivism thing, uh I don't know if there was if there's a, a connection, you know. As far as I can see, that was that was those architects like Coolhaus and Zaha who were interested in that. It it was it was for formal reasons. Uh, you know, the, the the politics of Russian constructivism, you know, are obviously extreme, <laughs> and I'm not quite sure what that would have brought to 1980s architectural culture. As for a uh, Architecture of Mayism, who knows? <laughs> I, I suspect, uh, you know, a, a you know, traditional uh, British vernacular is probably the most likely thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I wanted to take issue with your comments about the refurbishment because I think from my 
person who, I'm not an architect or uh, far from it, but I think that many of these buildings are not really functional for people to live in. Um, if you look at the high, high rises, if, you, if, you, if it's a lift goes off, then you pretty much have to walk up and down, you know, 40 flights of stairs. Um, the, it's, it's hard to, to find your way around many of these buildings. I mean, I, I constantly get lost in these, you know, brothers' buildings and, you know, universities and, and so on. And so there's something really dysfunctional, I think, in, 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 in the absence of, of space for, for restaurants and, 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 and community centers in these buildings that, that make them really uh, a dystopian uh, building. And so, I mean, do you think there's, beyond the political argument that you make, that there's something really wrong with these buildings and that, that create uh, emotions of, of, of really being in, in a dystopia, as I, as I suggest? I'm, I'm glad you made that point. Now, I mean, my, my view is that all those things do apply to some of these buildings, but by no means to all of them. You know, there are many of the buildings included in the book that were incredibly functional, that were wonderful places to live, that worked really well, you know, for a time, uh, and suffered from changes in, you know, social policies, uh, and a lot of the time, quite significant neglect. And, you know, actually one of the things that is sort of forgotten about New Labour is that they did pump in a lot of money to uh, doing pretty basic upgrades of many of these buildings, housing, that had been neglected under you know, the, all those years of, of Tory government, and it was a real uh, transformation. So, I mean, I, you know, there are many examples of failed buildings from the post-war era, of course, but that is by no means the whole story. And what I was trying to get away from was that view that, that all these buildings are these sort of cliched concrete monstrosities, failed architecture, and therefore should all be raised from the ground. Because the historical picture is inevitably far more complex. I was interested in your uh, comment regarding, I think, uh, um, in state in, in uh, Elephant Castle, where you said they were putting pipes on the outside uh, for gas, uh, and you felt that there was no kind of reference to the fact this was an architectural uh, development, and even though they'd had, um, you know, um, the ability to put them through the building, they chose to do that. Is that not part of the problem? A lot of the examples you use are in the public sector or the public space. Um, and the architects came along in the late 40s and early 50s at a time when resources were very, very tight. And so they provided a fantastic solution for mass housing and to solve uh, you know, pre a post-war problem. Uh, and it was a, almost a delight for local authorities. They could shove these things up very cheaply and get loads of people housed with re really no respect to the architectural value of what was there. And that, you know, that's, that's obviously debatable, but is, is that... Is that you know, part of the problem, do you think? So, sorry, your, your, your point is that modern uh, building methods, system build, things like that, allowed local authorities to put up loads of housing very, very quickly to meet the housing targets that central government had, whether Labour or Tory had, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's true. And a lot of, you know, housing of that era could be of better quality, certainly. Um, and it will, will come round to Ronan Point at some point. Uh, and that was the infamous example of system build being used in a way that, that vastly exceeded the, uh, the, the, the competence of the system, essentially. 
and you know, with disastrous uh, results. And yeah, buildings that you know, were built in that way, some of them worked very well, others less well, of course. And many of those should be demolished. They were, when they were built, were probably only intended to have a relatively short lifespan. Uh, you know, because, as you say, resources were scarce and there was a need just to build as much as possible to actually give people you know, a roof over their heads. So I have no problem with, with you know, a lot of that housing being replaced because that is the natural life cycle of those buildings. But there are many examples of you know, high-quality uh, housing that, that needn't be replaced, that could very easily be refurbished and is still being demolished. Most of the buildings that we've been looking at and are in your book were driven, at least to some extent, by the political idealism of the architects. Does that still exist amongst architects today? Would they be able to create a new phase of that, of that sort of building? Uh, uh, there are probably a few architects in the room who might be able to answer that better than me. Uh, you know, I, I, you know I, there is still you know, a huge swell of opinion amongst architects that, and nostalgia for this era and in, in that, you know, this was, this was when architects were at the, at the edge of, you know, moving things forward and now the role of the architect is being squeezed by the, by the building industry. And, you know, you, I think you only need to, um, you know, just sort of go to a number of events and read a number of things that are, you know, written or said by architects about housing that you can see that there is a huge interest in 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 that area and and doing things with housing that are you know not too far away from what was from you know the equivalent of what was done in the um, post-war era but just the political and economic situation means that there aren't the opportunities to do it so that's down to architects to see if they can uh, change that situation because I'm not totally sure it's going to change from central government. A slightly facetious question. On a matter of fact, what is the nationality of the architect planner who designed Poundbury? Not British. What? <laughs> not British, I don't think. Luxembourg. Yeah. Yeah. The Yeah. But the patron is, well, British, you would say. About as British as they come. Yeah. Okay, sorry, yeah, he's German. Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, I... Okay, well, I'm complete. I'm, you've got me. Thank you. <laughs> Hi, thanks for an excellent talk. Richard Wolfe from uh, Kingston University Historic Building and Conservation. I feel very optimistic that the listing process that's taken place recently will protect a lot of the better quality post-war buildings. Um, I'm delighted to see Helen Harcourt's book... Uh, recently published, which does capture a range of building types, ecclesiastical, residential, um, and also academic. But when um, I was uh, this week at Thamesmead with Poundbury, um, the romantic view that you are mentioning many architects have about post-modern, uh, sorry, post-war volume housing has to be tempered by the reality of social failure and breadline Britain in a borough, Greenwich, which is one of the wealthiest in Europe. Thamesmead was a failure and was one of the projects which I think needs radical alteration. And if it goes, it goes. 
finally, you have an interest in gas pipes. Let me tell you why gas pipes are on the outside of buildings, because you've already answered the question, Rowan Point. Gas pipes are threaded on the outside of buildings to ventilate them should they fail. Okay? They are not put there because of laziness. They're put there because it has to be done. It's a British standard, and if you put gas pipes inside lift cores and they leak, they explode. Oh, and they're painted yellow. Yeah, no, I, 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 yes, I can see the, the practical side, but there are ways of doing it. There's ways of making them a little bit more discreet or just sticking them on anywhere that you can find, and that's what I've, I've certainly detected where I live. Um, Within the context of your, of your book uh, and this view that politically driven, the, this brutalist is very left-wing and that today's main house building and architecture is driven by the market profit. Do you have any, with all this research, any kind of inkling as to the clues of what the new agents of socially significant architecture might be? The, the agents? Of I mean, the, the things that would drive it. If the market isn't necessarily doing it or it may do it, do you have any inkling as to, as to what things may, may produce socially significant architecture if it isn't the major house builders? Well, it probably has to be the state, uh, because who else is going? I mean, who else is going to do it? You know, there are things like community land trusts and sort of bottom-up development, but that those are by definition marginal things, and wonderful for the people involved in them, of course. But they're not going to solve the big problems that that we have just by sheer, um, you know, lack of housing or lack of availability of housing. I mean, I, I mean, the way I see it is, you know, the state does need to get involved in housing. Uh, you, it can't be left to the market because you've got that fundamental problem of land supply is inherently restricted. So the market's never going to provide everything that we need. So the state is going to have to step in. Now, there are obviously lots of different ways of doing it, and I would never suggest that the, the solution of the post-war era is the solution that we should be looking to now, as some politicians are suggesting, by advocating building a, a new generation of, of council housing. That was a solution to a particular set of conditions in the post-war era. Those that we face now are, I think, quite different. So we need a different solution, but the state is going to have to be involved certainly in terms of putting up the capital to do it. Following on from that point and the earlier comment about idealism, how representative of the architectural profession do you think are the views of Patrick Schumacher, who recently um, you know, proposed free market libertarianism, moving the proletariat out of the centre of London so presumably his employees could occupy their space, developing Hyde Park and, you know, and so on. Uh, lots of architects obviously opposed it, but I assume his wasn't a sole voice. How representative do you think of those views? Not at all. Uh, Patrick is a, is a um, lovely man, and uh, he is. He's a genuinely friendly uh, person who likes an argument and has quite extreme views and is happy to air them to get a discussion going. And you know, he, he, he's, an, he's an Asian provocateur, essentially. He, you know, um, and I, 
know, he, he appears very extreme to the architectural profession um, because actually he is such an outlier. You know, the architectural profession, I think, tends towards uh, the sort of centre-left. Uh, so he, he is, a, you know, a not at all representative uh, of, of the broader views of the profession, I would say. And I think when he, you know, that, that talk he gave a week later subsequently appeared on the Evening Standard, you know, many architects were aghast that this was being seen to be a representative, you know, of broader opinion amongst architects. I just want to talk about the kind of aesthetics of what you were saying to do with the architecture and sort of the Instagrammable nature of brutalism. And when you look at these buildings, they do almost become kind of abstract in their, in their beauty, some of them. Um, and perhaps that this is seen as being a kind of, a kind of like utopia for architects because it was a time when they were actually able to do something like build housing and be really kind of like artistically adventurous about the way that they were making these buildings as opposed to today when it just seems like it's steel and glass. All of these new properties just look exactly the same. And I wondered if there's something sort of in that in terms of the future, and if you think of an architect like Bjark Ingels, the mountain, which is actually quite a kind of dynamic structure and also housing. And if that there's possibly, that if we look towards a kind of more aesthetic way of thinking about brutalism, it kind of takes the sting out of the politics of it. And if we just say architects can be, more, or, or perhaps what you were saying about that, that they're being squeezed, and if we give them more freedom to be more aesthetically adventurous, we might be getting better you know, social housing. It's, it's an interesting point. Sean, would you have anything to say about that as someone, as an architect who has been quite aesthetically adventurous and has built housing? I'm always very nervous about the association of a particular aesthetic with a political signification. And I think that's kind of, there's been a sort of undertone of that in the discussion because, you know, interestingly, I, I, Owen Luder, who is the designer of the, the Tricorn Centre and of the Gateshead Car Park, the, um, uh, the Get Carter Car Park, I always remember whenever election time was around, Owen Luder always pronounced he was a conservative. And yet here he is doing this architecture that is supposedly representative of, uh, of, a, of a kind of social democracy or something even more radically left. I think it's a sort of two-edged sword when you give architects a lot of freedom, because it depends on how good the architect is, uh, unfortunately. The problem at the moment is not a kind of question, I mean there obviously is some kind of issue in, kind of, in the way that aesthetic taste filters through the planning system and, and how that reflects certain public attitudes, etc. But I think the main issue uh, for architects is a bigger one to do with a kind of structural change in the nature of professions. And that, uh, I'm, I'm sure there are lots of architects in this room and lots of people who are not, but you know, architects are a hell of a lot less powerful than they were. Some people might think that's a good thing. But you know the, the, the ability to have to, to implement the kind of visions that were um, uh, carried out in the 1950s and 1960s is, is much reduced. You know, architects are part of something called the supply chain these days. 
So I don't know. I mean, one thing I, I did want to say, which I thought was kind of interesting in this context, was that, and why I, I asked the question about Europe and, and, and Brexit, uh, I, I'm of the opinion that whatever happens, we're, we're going to leave the European Union and it's going to be tough and we're going to get a crap deal. But I think that's going to actually quite radically change politics in this, well, it already is doing. And I think we're either going to end up as a kind of uh, Singapore in the, uh, in, in the uh, Atlantic Ocean, or we're going to um, start thinking that uh, the state governments have to begin to intervene in things again. And I am optimistic that the latter might actually be the outcome of all of this because you know, you're even seeing hints of it in the Conservative manifesto where they're kind of waking up to the fact that what's gone on for the last 40 years is not going to, be able to, is not going to work in the new situation. And so possibly out of that, there may be, there may be a change where people begin to think, you know, maybe we need to be uh, investing in our infrastructure, investing in our hospitals. We'll see. We'll get a clue in about two weeks, I guess. Yeah, it does strike me that uh, if we've got people from RA Publications here, a great one to do would be a European version of this book. One fact I didn't bring up was that, um, obviously it's lovely, we had the Fairfax Sports Centre in the book, in Coventry, and you think, well, that's, that's beautiful, that's, um, you know, the welfare state investing in, in uh, well-being, community sports centres, and by, by the late 70s, this country had about 700 of them, which sounds great, um, but West Germany had 20,000. So I think there's a British exceptionalism about what was going on, it's that we need to break through. Um, and maybe that would, be, that would be the way to do it, particularly as West Germany, in fact Germany, is now going, these are all out of date. We need to build the next generation, and how do we do it? So I challenge you. And I think the book is on special offer at the back, so I recommend you buy it. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.